Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. And we pick up where we left off last week. We're going to look at verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. This morning I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible and invite you to follow in whatever version you might have with you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 read this way from the New American Standard Bible. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Paul, Peter, excuse me, sorry, Peter. (laughs) I'm so used to thinking about Paul, I leave Peter out of the picture. Peter has spent the first part of what we know as chapter 2 talking about who we are as the children of God. He has emphasized the fact that we are part of a living, breathing building. And it's a building that is eternal in nature. We are individually, as fathers of Christ, living stones, properly prepared and fit where we belong in the body of Christ. In addition to this... Last week we saw how he emphasized the fact that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And as he pondered those things, I can sense in his spirit, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how he was going to call these people to whom he wrote this letter to be people who lived in a certain way. And that certain way is in general terms, given to us in verses 11 and 12. And for the rest of the book of 1 Peter, he's going to elaborate and enumerate the ways in which we are to live differently. We are to be different. In a word, we are to live a beautiful life. The word which is translated in this passage of Scripture in different ways communicates this idea of beautiful something, namely a beautiful life lived In relationship to God. And how are we to live this beautiful life? Well, there are two things the text teaches us. I'll mention both of them at the outset and then we'll look at them in some detail. First of all, in order to live this beautiful life that God has called us to, we must abstain from fleshly lusts. And secondly, we are to maintain attractive conduct. Let's begin with the first truth that emerges from this passage of Scripture, we are to abstain from fleshly lusts. There's difficulty in this responsibility which we have of abstaining from fleshly lusts, and it's found in the fact that there is an internal war taking place in the life of every one of us who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again at the text Verse 11, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war within your soul. The word which Peter chooses for waging war is not hand-to-hand combat like Paul uses in the book of Ephesians when he talks about our spiritual warfare is not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. That's not the word which he uses here. He uses the word 
which speaks of a planned military mission with a particular military objective. This would suggest that the fleshly lusts in our lives marshal themselves together. They form, as it were, an army of men who are sending out to do something very negative to us in whom Christ dwells. What our lustly desi- lust desires to do in our life is to render us inoperative, to put us on the shelf, to render us useless. And therefore, this explains the difficulty associated with our abstaining from these fleshly lusts. The word which is translated abstain is worth taking a moment to talk about. This word is a word literally which means to be holding ourselves away from. It's a big word in the original language. And it's the idea of it's our responsibility because of the way in which Peter writes this, to always be alert and on guard against these fleshly lusts, remembering that they are gaining forces together to attack us and to render us useless as far as God's plan for our lives are concerned. There's active hostility against us based on our fleshly lust. Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 5.17. It hasn't been that long that we studied the book of Galatians. And in Galatians 5.17, he talks about this battle between the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and our flesh. Our flesh is this fleshly lust that's spoken of here. And remember how we defined flesh? Flesh is my personality or your personality out from under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. So these fleshly lusts are at war with our soul, actually. At war with the Spirit, but also at war with our soul, as Peter speaks of it in this passage of Scripture. Now the question is, what are these fleshly lusts? We could go back and would be doing a good thing to go back to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 where Paul lists a long description of fleshly deeds. But since we have not been long from doing that, I'd like for us to go to another passage in the New Testament, which talks about some of these fleshly lusts. This is found in the passage which we read earlier from the book of Colossians, chapter 3. So if you could find your place again, Colossians, chapter 3. Let's look at verse 5. Pick up in the middle of the passage which we read. Therefore, since our lives are hidden with God in Christ, therefore, keep on considering the members of your earthly body as dead to... And then he begins to enumerate some of these fleshly lusts. The first of which is immorality. And the word translated immorality means any kind of unlawful sexual relationship. The only legitimate sexual relationship, as far as God is concerned, is marriage between a man and a woman, which serves as the parameters which God has established for sexual expression between human beings. That's what God's plan is, and He understands it. And you, if you live in such a relationship, you know there's great freedom in such a relationship 
as compared to relationships which are outside the box that God has proscribed for our sexual relationships. So this is one of those areas that we find ourselves at war with. If you're in this world and you're paying any attention to what's going on in this world, you understand what this is about. We are under attack in this area probably as critically and consistently as any other area in our lives. Everything in our culture seems to point in this direction. Look at the next word which is used, impurity. This is a broader term, although it's often used in regard to sexual immorality. It's a word which carries with it the idea of evil thoughts, words, and actions. Think with me a moment about what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. When he's approached by Pharisees who are all about what was going on on, on the outside of a person's life as compared to what's going on inside a person's life as it relates to sinful behavior. And Jesus says in Mark 7, 21, that all these things which are evil begin as evil thoughts, evil thoughts that originate in our hearts, which result, and he begins to list some of those things, and among those things are adulteries and fornication and immorality. So, Where this begins, this whole issue of uncleanness or impurity, it begins in my head, doesn't it? It begins in my mind. And so let me interrupt myself at this point and give some hopefully good direction from God's Word as to how you and I, when we are battling these lustly, fleshly desires, when we are battling those things, How are we to deal with them? Remembering that the real battle is here in my mind. It's true of all sin, but especially with these sins. Well, we can begin with Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is that acceptable, perfect, and good will of God. So I need to have my mind renewed. That's a great place to begin, which raises a question. How does that work? How do I renew my mind? Is there any more direction that we can find in Scripture about that? Well, certainly there is. If we go to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, this is what Paul writes. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. So I need to make a habit of filling my mind with those things which fit those different words. We could just stop with the word true. His word is truth. That's what the Bible says. So fill your mind with the word of God. And then you will be able to think about those things which are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy, when you have this flood of evil thoughts coming into your mind. Colossians 3.16, in the same chapter that we're looking at at the moment, it says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. So we let God's Word dwell in us richly. Do you ever have the experience of referring to God's Word 
in certain situations and you find it to be so enriching and encouraging, particularly when you're having a difficulty in your life, remembering what the Bible says in Romans 15, verse 4, that whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. We go to the Word of God. And of course, in the passage that we're looking at, in chapter 3, the Bible says, Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. How can we get rid of these impure, unclean thoughts which result in unclean, impure words and unclean, impure action? Well, it is all related and tied to the renewing of our mind by the Word of God, by the Spirit, using His Word for our renewal. Another word which appears here in Colossians 3.5 is passion. This means a fired-up kind of passion, normally associated in the New Testament language with sexual passion, but it could be any number of passions. This thing that gets out of control, it's out of bounds. It's like a fire that's gone rogue. It's destroying everything in its path. Sometimes we feel like that in our sexual reality in our lives. Evil desire, well, that doesn't need much, if any, explanation. Any desire that's outside the context of what God has established for us would qualify as an evil desire. And then the word greed which amounts to idolatry, is what he said. Covetousness is the idea, but greed is a word we're more commonly associated with in our thinking. Greed. Now, what is greed? The word translated greed comes from a word which combines two words. One means to have, and the other way means more. So isn't that what greed is? I want to have more. And in the New Testament, greed always, and the Old Testament for that matter, always is associated with wanting more that doesn't belong to me. Or wanting something which is forbidden to me. Greed. Just last week I was reading in my map journal reading from Luke chapter 12, where a man shouts out, sort of interrupts Jesus. He's rude in his approach to Jesus. And he said, teacher... Tell my brother to give me half of the family inheritance. And that led Jesus to begin to talk about this whole matter of greed. And Jesus warned those who were present by saying to them, Watch out. Always be on guard for every form of greed. Because a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Now, let me try to explain really what Jesus is saying there. It's pretty plain on the surface, but there are two words, really three, which are translated life in the New Testament. One is the word suke, from which we get our word psychology. It's actually the word soul. Sometimes, even in Luke 12, from which I'm quoting, Jesus uses this word in relationship to life. He calls Suke, in the translators, translate life. That's the best way to translate it. Another word is bios. You hear some words which come from the word bios. Biology comes from the word. It's about natural life, physical life. 
But surprisingly, Jesus uses a different word here. He uses the word zoe. We have some little girls in our church from time to time who are named Zoe. There's one named Zoe who's just about a year old who comes to this church with her parents, a darling girl. Zoe is the life that Jesus promises us that he came to give us. What kind of life did Jesus come to give us? He says, I have come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. It's the word zoe. That's the word which Jesus uses here. When he says, be on your guard about all forms of greed, because you must understand that a man's zoe does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Now, there's some teachers, faith teachers, who would say, hey, that's not right, because God wants you to be wealthy. Now, let me... Say something before you get your hackles up about that. It's okay to be wealthy. God, for some reason, gives people wealth. And for some reason, He doesn't give the rest of us any of it. And we need to be happy that He's given it to somebody, right? Right? We need to rejoice with those who rejoice. And so we can enter into the joy of being wealthy just by rejoicing for people in the body of Christ who are wealthy. The Bible has plenty of people who are wealthy. But there's no way that you can build a theology that's a biblical theology that says God wants every one of his children to be wealthy because of this one statement that Jesus said. This is a proof text that flies in the face of that kind of thinking. What does it say? Jesus said it. I didn't say it. He says, a man's life, Zoe, the abundant life that Jesus promises, a full and meaningful life, a man's abundant life, that I give to him does not consist, consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's instructive, isn't it? And then he tells this parable, you'll remember, this man who has been very fortunate, he would say. We know there's really no such thing as fortune. We believe in the sovereignty of God. But God's blessed him. He doesn't seem to have a relationship with God. And he's blessed him, and it says his land is very productive. Big crops, so big that the barns which he has can't hold all this bumper crop. So he decides, he takes his own counsel, which is always pretty poor. You need to go to God for counsel on matters like this. And he says, I'm just going to tear my barns down. I'm going to build new barns to hold all this produce that I have reaped as far as my land is concerned. And then... I'm going to say to myself, take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And we know what the Epicureans said at the end of that. For tomorrow you may die, right? Well, that was his fate. It was not tomorrow. It was that night. In the parable, Jesus says, God says, you foolish soul. He calls him a soul. Pretty interesting. You're not even going to make it to tomorrow to enjoy all this stuff that you've accumulated. Do you know why that guy said, take it easy? I think, this is just, I think I'm on good ground here. I wouldn't say it. Take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Because all his life, he had not taken it easy. He'd spent all his life trying to accumulate an abundance of possessions. And he thought, my bumper crop has come in. Now I can just kick back and enjoy Jesus, in that next section in Luke chapter 12, I had never tied these two things together until I thought about it the other day when I was reading it. 
But what I saw there, and I hope you will see too, Jesus, this is the passage where he says, don't worry what you're going to eat or drink or wear. And he compares the lilies of the field to the wardrobe of Solomon and how God takes care of the ravens. This is the bird that he chooses to describe in the book of Luke as opposed to sparrows in the book of Matthew when he teaches about this. But the point is that God takes care of you. All you need to do is seek first God and His kingdom, and all the necessities of life will be added to you. That takes a lot of stress off of us, doesn't it? There's probably more than a handful of people present here this morning who came all stressed out over something financial in your life. Has anybody been bothered by that this week? Maybe even this morning? Well, the good news is your life, the abundant life which Christ has for you, does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Don't measure yourself by your possessions. Don't compare yourself to other people who have more than you do and become covetous as it relates to them. I never forget reading a book that I've used for probably 35 years in premarital counseling with people. And there's a really good chapter on money in the book. And the authors, a husband and wife, write this, that they have encountered more people who are obsessed with money who don't have much than those who have a lot are obsessed with it. That sort of surprised me, but they are experts, and that's probably true. Some of us who don't have a much, we, we can't, we're greedy. We want more. We want something that somebody else has. When we have the Lord, we have all we need. Look at Hebrews for just a moment. Chapter 13. I want you to see this with your own eyes and mark it down. If you've never thought about it, on the surface it looks like these two thoughts are incompatible, but we know nothing in the Bible is incompatible, especially things which are in close proximity in what we call the same context. Verse 5 of Hebrews 13. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. That sounds Marxist, doesn't it? Give them a placebo. Give them an opiate. The opiate of the people. That's what religion does. It kind of settles you down and you can control people when you do that. But there's nothing of that in this text. For he himself, that is God, has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Okay. Here's the answer, isn't it? When I am not content with what I have, what am I saying about my relationship to God? God is not enough to give me contentment. Well, that's just not true. There is no contentment apart from being in a right relationship with God. I don't care how much money you have or how big a job you have or how many people answer to you. I don't care about any of those things. If you don't have your life in a proper place with the Lord, you don't have peace. You can't be content with your wages. I cannot help but think about the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, where he says in Philippians 4, that I have learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. 
That's a strong statement because he says, I've known what it is to be well fed. I've known what it is to be hungry. I've known what it is to have plenty. I've known what it is to have nothing. But I've learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. Do you know why that was the case? If you read just a little further up the passage, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Here's the key. The Lord is near. The Lord was in him. He was near to him. And Jesus was his everything. He says earlier in the book, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ. When we have this relationship with the Lord, we're seeking first God's kingdom and His righteousness, then we will not mistake the abundance of our possessions for that which will give us contentment. Please understand this. Greed is idolatry. Isn't that interesting? Greed amounts to idolatry. In what way would that be true? Well, who is the center of covetousness? Who is? If I covet, who's the center of that? I'm the center of that. Absolutely. Same with sexual immorality and uncleanness. All sin puts Mike Woods right in the center of everything. So what this whole matter of winning the war against fleshly lust amounts to is who's God in my life and who is God in your life. Isn't that true? I make an idol out of me. My pastor used to say, as he would talk about idolatry and about the self-centered life, he would write the word idol, I-D-O-L. Then he would draw a line between the first two letters. I-Doll. That's what idolatry is. I am my own doll. Uh, that takes a lot of imagination, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, my goodness. But I'm acquainted with that idol, frankly. Way too much acquainted with it. And you probably are too. And God wants us to be done with that. God hates idolatry. He is a jealous God. And He will not allow that to continue in your life or my life. The possibility of abstaining from fleshly lust is assumed by Peter. And it's inherent in who we are after we're introduced into the family of God. Let's go back to 1 Peter now. We've already studied how Peter called these people aliens. And an alien is someone who is a foreigner, simply put. A stranger is a pilgrim. Aliens were sort of resident aliens. A stranger is someone who's there for a little while and is passing through. And what caused us to be aliens and strangers? We were chosen by God. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation of people for God's own possession. We're different. We need to dare to be aliens and strangers. That's what Christ calls us to. In the Sermon on the Mount, in speaking about the pagans... The Gentile unbelievers, he says, don't be like them. We work way too hard to be like them. 
But what God wants us to do, as we're going to see in the last part of this message, what God wants us to do is to stand out in a different way. Not in an in-your-face kind of way to people who don't know Christ, but in a way that reflects the superiority of the life in Christ. Not in the sense that we feel like we're better, because we know we're not better than anybody. Apart from the grace of God, we would be where they are. But in terms of that life bringing glory to God and bringing a resultant peace into our own lives. Because we're doing what we were created to do. What is that? We were created to glorify God, right? And that is mentioned in this passage as well. So, in order for us to live this beautiful life, what do we have to do first of all? We have to abstain from fleshly lusts. Secondly, we need to maintain attractive conduct. Let's look at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent. And the word excellent is the word kalos in the original language, normally translated by our English word good. But it's not the word which means good in the sense of ethically good, although that certainly would be involved in this kind of life. But it's a word which carries with it the idea of beauty, aesthetic beauty. There should be a beauty about the way we behave. Our conduct should cause people to pause when they are with us or when they reflect on encounters which they have had for us. Because we're different. Do you know what the difference is? The difference is we are new creatures in Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We have become partakers of the new nature. We are aliens and strangers. We are different. We are residents of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. Our country is heaven. And the Bible says in the book of Ephesians that we who know Christ are seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We're in Christ. We occupy a place of great, great blessing. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. This kind of conduct that we are to show forth as being attractive, has two purposes. To quiet our critics, that's one, and we'll look at that in a moment, but also to draw those with whom we interact to Jesus by our good deeds. People who are not in Christ, but are interested, even though we may not know they're interested, they might not even know they're interested, but there's something Spirit of God is stirring in them, they will read you and me as known believers before they'll ever pick up the Bible to read. And the way in which we follow Christ will be an advertisement. It'll be a positive or a negative ad. And so we want to have this beautiful kind of... Of life. Let's look back at the text. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Well, let's back up. What happens, and some of you have experienced this in your walk with the Lord. You've come out for Christ. You're unashamed to be known as a Christian. 
not obnoxious, but you're unashamed. And it costs you sometimes. I'm thinking of a man whom I have known for almost 40 years. A man who had a very strong career in civil service. A man who rose quite a way up the ladder as far as his agency was concerned. But he never made it to the level that would have been like next to the top. There were many men and women who had that level. And I know why it was. It's because he was very free in his sharing Christ with other people. He was not ashamed of Jesus at all. He loved the Lord. He still loves the Lord. He's still going strong. He and I are the same age, and he's still going strong for the Lord. He brings a smile to my face every time I think of him. I, I smile in my heart. Joy comes in my heart because of his commitment to the Lord Jesus. He's a federal or was a federal peace officer, a great man of God, tremendous. And he paid a price. People made fun of him. They made wisecracks, not just behind his back, but to his face. He was vilified by people. That's what the word slander means. It means to talk down about people. If we go into church history, the early part of the church... We can read people like Tacitus, the Roman historian, or Suetonius in his lives of the Caesars. And what we find in both of these people, they talk about how these believers were superstitious, these Christians, these Christ followers. And the result was that they were persecuted. You know the Neronian persecution. What did he do? He scapegoated the Christians for his own evil of setting fire to Rome. He was nuts. He was demonized, probably, which makes people nuts. But nevertheless, that happened then, and it's happened throughout church history. It will continue to happen. It'll happen in our lives, probably more and more as we go forward in our own lives, as our own culture, which for over two centuries has enjoyed the beautiful outcome of a nation that was founded by People, with the exception of one person, perhaps, who did not know and love God. And we've benefited from the Judeo-Christian heritage for over two centuries. And it looks like that's coming to a close really fast, unless God sends a revival. And God can. I'm not saying He won't. And look at this text as it goes on to say in the middle of verse 12. They, that is the Gentiles who aren't believers, may be cause of your good deeds. There's that word again, kalos, beautiful deeds, as they observe them. And the idea observe is to really watch. You know, people are watching you who aren't believers. You may think that nobody cares that you're a Christian where you work or in your home, in your neighborhood. But believe me, people, if, if they know you're a Christian, they're watching you. They're wanting to get put the finger on you and expose you and call you a hypocrite, but when you are mistreated, slandered, and you don't come back at them and want to give them a verbal punch, or maybe a real punch for treating you like that, but you restrain yourself because Jesus is your example, you follow Him, then the result is that they are going to glorify God. Ah, 
You're going to glorify God. Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds. Same words. And glorify your Father who is in heaven to honor Him, to revere Him, to love Him in the day of visitation. Now, there's difference of opinion about what that's about. But probably it's not about the second coming, although that will be a great day for those people. It's probably when the Spirit of God comes and speaks to those people through your good conduct, your beautiful conduct. That's what it's talking about. It's going to be a beautiful day for those unbelievers who become believers, isn't it? And it's going to glorify God when that happens. Well, God wants us to live a beautiful life, an attractive life. Let me quickly summarize some of the things that we should take from today's message. One is that we are to live victoriously. And by that, what I mean is we're to live by faith, which is the way to live a victorious life. And that life is a life which will show forth the fruit of the Spirit of God. Love and joy and peace and all those characteristics associated with being filled with the Holy Spirit. Live victoriously. We can. We have Christ in us by the Holy Spirit. We can ask the Holy Spirit to fill us and He will. Here's the second thing. Leave no room for slander. You will be slandered. But make sure there's no basis for your being slandered. Plato, who was not a follower of the one true God, but a wise man in many ways, was told by one of his disciples that there was a certain man who was slandering him. And this is what Plato said in response to that information. I will live in such a way that no one will believe what he says about me. That should be the way we live. Follow Christ, right? Don't let fleshly lust dominate your life. Follow Jesus. Be filled with the Spirit. Thirdly, do good deeds, not just in the church, but among unbelievers too. Do good things to them. Let's say this afternoon you're driving down I-10. It's 105 degrees. You see a car broken down on the shoulder of the road. Tires gone bad. And you slow down and you hang your head out the window and say, Hey, are you a Christian? And they say, no, and you just go on by. That's not being a good witness, is it? You missed an opportunity, didn't you? If you do that sort of thing. So be aware that there are unbelievers all around, aren't there? And we don't even know who is and who isn't sometimes. But we do good deeds among them. And remember, always remember, and this is redundant, I know, but I want to reiterate it because I think that's what God would do. Remember... People are watching you. Somebody's watching you. Well, let me close with this little story. Warren Wiersbe gives it in his commentary on 1 Peter. He says, In the summer of 1805, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors met in council at Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation of the Christian message by a Mr. Krim from the Boston Missionary Society. After the sermon, a response was given by Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs. Among other things, this is what he said. Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. 
We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you have said. It's important, isn't it? People are watching us that we be people who live this kind of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity to worship you, and we pray that you would help us all to take to heart the things which you have taught us. Help us to apply them to our lives for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.